0: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
1: Chapter 13 of Jimmy Dale and the Phantom Clue by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. The Lesser Breed From somewhere in the darkness there came a faint musical purr as of metal whirring swiftly upon metal. It stopped, began again, and stopped again. Then utter silence reigned. Then there came a low, deep-breathed exclamation, and simultaneously the ray of a flashlight cut through the black, flooded the interior of a small safe. And reflected back upon a masked figure in evening dress. One of the X thirty-eight type, murmured Jimmie Dale to himself, and as per catalogue, especially adapted for private residences. Tough little nuts to crack. I haven't seen one since the old days at the plant when Dad used to turn them out by the gross. He reached inside the safe, lifted out a morocco leather jewel case, and opened it. For an instant he held it under the light, staring at a magnificent emerald necklace of flawless, matched stones. The weasel had been quite right. Stones such as these must have been garnered and selected from the markets of more than one continent. They would be, through the usual underworld channels, extremely hard to fence, for a small and ordinary emerald was not of any great value, and to cut one of these and so disguise it "'would instantly rob it of the great part of its worth. "'It was certainly a job for Shiftel. "'It quite accounted for Shiftel's reappearance. "'Jimmy Dale laid the jewel-case, still open, on the top of the safe, "'and from the leather girdle hidden beneath his vest "'drew out the thin metal box that was stocked with little grey adhesive, "'diamond-shaped seals. "'He moistened one of these, lifting it with the tweezers, "'and stuck it on the inside of the jewel-case.' Then he replaced the metal box in his girdle and slipped the Morocco leather jewel case into his pocket. And now the light bored into the safe again. There was nothing else there of value from a thief's standpoint. It contained what were evidently some of Mr. Melville Dane's private papers. It had only been a temporary refuge for the emerald necklace in lieu of the safe deposit vault from which it had been removed to grace the evening's reception. Satisfied on this point, Jimmy Dale closed and locked the safe again. He drew back now across the room and, smiling curiously, arranged two low-backed chairs side by side before the library table. Then his flashlight played for a moment on the wall, locating precisely the electric light switch just beside a little alcove that was hung with heavy port chairs. And then the room was in darkness, and Jimmy Dale sat stretched at ease in a lounging chair in the alcove behind the hangings. His lips Twitched grimly. Now, it was quite a transition from Smarlinghue and the back room of Wally Carrigan's club. It was somewhat different too, in another way. At Wally Carrigan's, night after night, he had waited and watched for something, anything that would open the road to the goal he had set himself—the phantom. Tonight, he waited and watched here, quite sure in his own mind as to the exact nature of what would happen and with no misgivings any longer, but that his goal was in sight. In an hour, two hours, at any rate, some time before dawn, he would have run Shiftel, alias the Phantom, to earth. It was the end in sight at last. Life, happiness, for the Toxin and himself. It was very dark, very still, in the library of the Melville Dane mansion here. Again the twisted smile crossed his lips, Here, too, was quite a transition from the brilliant assembly of but an hour before, when he'd been one of the guests at a social function that had been, from a society point of view, one of the events of the season. His smile became a little whimsical. Mrs. Melville Dane had been superb in that emerald necklace. He'd paid her almost marked attention throughout the entire evening. Not once had she been out of his sight, even up to the time when she had taken off the necklace and had handed it to her husband to be placed in the safe here in the library. It had been quite simple. He had bidden his hosts and hostess good night, and in the confusion of the departing guests, instead of departing himself, had secreted himself in the house. He shrugged his shoulders. His attentions had been quite wholly unnecessary, perhaps. He had not expected the weasel and Goldie Klein to make any attempt upon the necklace until, say, now it was highly improbable that they would have attempted to stage anything with the house full of people. And yet, if the Phantom's brain was behind the scheme, such an attempt had always remained a possibility. And since he, Jimmy Dale, for his own ends, to pick up the final clue that would bring him face to face with the Phantom, had elected to give no warning either to the Melville Danes or to the police, then, of necessity, the moral responsibility for the safety of the necklace was his alone and so he'd taken no chances. The minutes, the quarter-hours, dragged by. A clock struck through the silence with a clashing, resonant sound. That would be half past two. It was time now, surely, for the weasel and Goldie Klein, for they'd already allowed ample leeway for the household to retire and settle down for the night. He stared into the dark. His brain seemed strangely, abnormally active to-night. It was due, wasn't it, to a sort of exhilaration, an uplift that was upon him. The promise of the end. The Toxin might be quite right, and probably was, in her belief that the Phantom was planning a trap for him, Jimmy Dale, for the Grey Seal. But her fears now were groundless. It was a plot that, however cunning, however clever it might be, would never come to maturity. It would not be the phantom now who struck the first blow after tonight, she need never fear the phantom again.' A faint sound, the sound of a cautious, guarded footstep, caught his ear. He stood up silently, his automatic in his hand. The door at the far end of the library creaked slightly, and then, through the parting of the hangings in front of him, Jimmy Dale saw the white gleam of an electric torch flash around the room. Low whisperings reached him now. He parted the hangs another half inch. The flashlight was playing on the safe. Two dark forms were moving quickly toward it, and now one of the two knelt before the safe and began to manipulate the dial, while the other held the light over the kneeling man's shoulder. Jimmy Dale stepped noiselessly from behind the portieres. chairs. His hand reached upward. There was a faint click as his fingers closed on the electric light switch, and the room was ablaze with light. A smothered oath came from the kneeling man as he sprang to his feet. The other, startled, dropped his electric torch to the floor. And then silence. An absence of all movement, save that, in obedience to an eloquent gesture from the muzzle of Jimmy Dale's automatic, into which they stared, the two men slowly raised their hands above their heads. "'Hello, Goldie. Hello, Weasel,' said Jimmy Dale softly from behind his mask. "'I was almost beginning to think you weren't coming.' He waved his hand toward the two chairs by the table. "'I've been waiting for you, you see. Sit down, won't you?' The weasel, licking at his lips, his shriveled little face working, swore under his breath. "'Who—who are yous?' he demanded shakily. "'We'll talk about that presently, weasel,' Jimmy Dale answered coolly. "'In the meantime—' His voice hardened suddenly, rasping, cold, Go over there and sit down. Truculently, hesitatingly, their hands still above their heads, the two men moved forward and sat down in the chairs. Now, Jimmy Dale was biting off his words as he stepped swiftly behind them. One at a time. You first, Goldie. Put your hands around the back of the chair, palms together. And then, as the man obeyed, Jimmy Dale thrust his left hand into the tail pocket of his evening coat, produced a small coil of stout cord, and shook it out to its full length. It had two loops near the center in the form of slip-knots. He slipped one of the loops over Goldie Klein's wrists and tightened it. "'Now you, weasel!' The other loop closed upon the weasel's wrists. A moment more, and the respective ends of the cord were lashed to the respective chairs, and Jimmy Dale stepped around to the other side of the table to face the two men. He smiled at them for a moment, speculatively. Goldie Klein burst suddenly into a torrent of blasphemy. Jimmie Dale's smile became plaintive. "'That's rather foolish of you, Goldie,' he said. "'You're making quite a little noise, and from your standpoint I should say that was the one thing to avoid.' The weasel squirmed in his chair. "'Who are you? he demanded hoarsely again. "'What's the lay? You's no dick with that mask on your map.' "'You're quite right.' said Jimmie Dale calmly. As a matter of fact, I'm afraid I'm in the same category as yourselves tonight. Shall we say fellow thieves? The only difference being that I've got what I came for and you haven't. The weasel's red-like little eyes narrowed. He leaned forward. What do you mean? he snarled. Jimmie Dale took the Morocco-leather jewel case from his pocket, opened it and laid it down on the table in front of the two men. This, he said tersely. The man bent forward, staring. It was a minute before either spoke. Goldie Klein raised his eyes and cast a furtive, fear-startled glance at Jimmy Dale. The weasel licked his lips again. "'My God!' whispered the weasel thickly. "'It's the grey seal!' Jimmy Dale made no answer. It was Goldie Klein who spoke now. The man seemed to have pulled himself together, and in his tones was a sort of blustering bravado. So you's the grey seal, are youse? Well done, I don't get yous. You's have beat us to it and pinched the goods, damn yous! I can see that. But What's the big idea in hanging round after you's got the swag and sticking up the weasel in me?' Jimmy Dale closed the jewel case and returned it to his pocket. "'That's a fair question, Goldie,' he said pleasantly, "'and I'll answer it. "'It's no kinch to shove that necklace. "'There's only one man who would have much chance, "'and that's old Isaac Shiftel.' He smiled at them engagingly. "'I'm sure you'll agree with me, because... "'The source of my information is really of no consequence at the moment. "'I happen to know that it was mainly, if not wholly, "'because Shiftel agreed to dispose of the stones "'that you figured the job of getting them would pay. "'Well, I am in exactly the same position.' Dale's smile broadened a little.' Without Shiftel, the stones wouldn't pay me. I think this answers your question. I have the necklace, and you haven't. But you know where Shiftel, who seems to be extremely difficult of late to locate, can be found tonight, and I don't. And so I waited for you, because I was sure you'd be kind enough to give me his address. Goldie Klein's jaw had dropped. He shut it now with a snap. "'Well, by God!' he burst out furiously. Can yous beat that? Say, you have got your nerve. Yous grabs the stuff from under our noses, and then yous at the goal to ask us to wise yous up so yous can get rid of it. Say, we'll see yous an elf first, won't we, weasel? Yous have said something, Goldie, agreed the weasel earnestly. We sure will. I'm so sorry, said Jimmy Dale patiently. I really thought you would help me out. In fact, I actually counted on it. You don't say!' The weasel was quite at his ease now, sneering broadly. And then Jimmy Dale leaned suddenly across the table. All trace of facetiousness was gone from both voice and manner now. He drew his watch from his pocket. "'Listen, you two, and listen hard,' he said evenly. "'I'm going to give you two minutes to come across. "'It might be compounding a felony to let you get away from here, "'but you didn't steal anything, though that's not your fault.' and i am thinking of the long terms you would get even for breaking and entering with your records behind you i am making myself clear a little noise down here will bring the family and servants about your ears in short order while i go out the way you came in if they find you here even trussed up as you are i imagine you will find it rather difficult to explain to the police how you came to visit mr melville dane at half-past two o'clock in the morning on the other hand an earnest half-hour's work, the time I should like to feel I was guaranteed against any interference on your part, will free you from that cord, and once free you can walk out of here. I still hope I'm making myself clear. He glanced at his watch. One minute is already gone. Where were you to meet Shiftel? A whitish tinge had crept into Goldie Klein's face. Damn yous! he whispered fervently. The weasel squirmed again in his chair. He looked at Goldie Klein. "'I ain't for going up for nothing.' There was a sudden, nerveless whine in his voice. "'He's got the goods anyhow. We ain't going to lose nothing by telling. What—what do you say, Goldie?' Goldie Klein gnawed at his lips. "'All right,' he muttered after a moment. "'Spill it. I guess there ain't nothing else to do.' "'Just a minute.' said jimmie dale coolly he replaced his watch in his pocket it would be unfortunate if there were a mistake in the address i am sure your memories are good enough to recall certain instances in the underworld that will reassure on the point that the gray seal always pays his debts i mention this simply in passing and now where is shiftel waiting for you it was the weasel who answered "'He's in the room of the back yard, "'down at Morley's dope joint,' "'he said sullenly. "'Thank you,' said Jimmy Dale grimly. "'I know where that is.' "'He moved away from the table and toward the door. "'Here he paused for a moment. "'The two men were already tugging and struggling with their bonds. "'I forgot to say,' he said quietly. "'And there's nothing of any value left in the safe. "'Good night.' "'And then Jimmy Dale was gone.' End of chapter 13 Chapter 14 of Jimmy Dale and the Phantom Clue by Frank L. Packard This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon The Cat's Paw Five minutes later, Jimmy Dale climbed into the light runabout that, prior to the reception, he had unobtrusively parked in an alleyway, a block from the Melville Dane residence. He replaced his silk hat with a peaked cap which he drew out from under the seat, and the car shot forward into the street. He drove fast now. He had no thought of speed laws. Shiftel, the phantom, the end in sight. He had no thoughts for anything but that. He asked for nothing more than just this, which was at last to be granted him, of playing out the final hand with this inhuman fiend to whom murder was a trade, and crime of the basest sort, a pastime. There was room now for only one of them, the phantom or himself, in this world. The debt that lay between them was too abysmal to be plumbed or spanned in any other way. And yet the man should have his chance, a chance to fight for his life. He was not entitled to it. He, the phantom, under the same conditions, would have struck as quickly and murderously as he could. In fact, if the tocsin was right, as no doubt she was, the Phantom, even now, was preparing a trap which, to-morrow, the next day, or the day after, was intended to be sprung in the hope of snaring him, Jimmy Dale, the Grey Seal. And that trap once sprung successfully, he, Jimmy Dale, would go out with no more chance for life than the flame of a candle flung to the storm. But there would be no to-morrow, or the next day, or the day after, for the Phantom and his trap. Tonight, now, within the next few minutes, there would be no longer a need for the phantom to cudgel his brain for tricks and devices to lure the grey seal into his web." The streets were deserted. A strange, queer silence seemed to reign over the city. Somehow it seemed sinister, premonitive, aptly so. Still Jimmy Dale drove fast, and then finally, far over on the east side, Deep in a neighborhood as vicious and abandoned as New York had to offer, he parked his car again in the lane, sprang out, and started at a brisk walk along the block. There was a grim, set look on his face now, as his hand, slipping into his pocket for his automatic, encountered the Morocco leather jewel case. Shiftel was waiting for the necklace. Well, Shiftel should have it, for a moment. But at that, its safety was nowhere nearly so greatly imperilled as if it had been left as a temptation for Goldie Klein and the Weasel. Tomorrow, in some way, it would be back in the Melville Dane's possession again. Jimmy Dale swerved sharply into a cross street, and from there into an alleyway. His pace slackened, became guarded, cautious. He knew Morley's opium then, by more than hearsay. As smarlinghue, he'd been a supposed client more than once. Yes. Here it was. The back of it, anyway, over this fence here and across the yard. Well, it was the back of it he sought, wasn't it? That was what the weasel had said. The room off the back yard. He drew himself up to the top of the fence, dropped silently to the other side, and suddenly his pulse beat fast. Across the yard was an open lighted window, almost on a level with the ground. Unbridled now, almost overwhelming, that sense of acceleration was upon him again. The end of the chase! What did it not mean? For the tocsin? For himself? Jimmy Dale moved forward quietly, noiselessly. Ten yards? Another ten? He was not far from the window now, not more than another five yards. And now he could see inside. Shiftel. And now he knew another emotion, something cold, merciless, primitive in its naked thirst for retribution. The weasel had made no mistake. Shiftel was there. He could see the bent form in its greasy, black coat. He could see the bearded face of the old fence bending over a table, as he had seen it once before on a night when he had thought he had run the man to earth in the rooms old Mother Margot lived in now. A yard more. Yes. The window was not more than a couple of feet above the ground. His automatic was in his hand now, his face masked again. Another yard and then jimmie dale whirled sharply around his face drawn suddenly in hard tense lines out of the darkness out of nowhere came a voice ugly in its menace a voice he recognised bunty myers there he is get him the gray seal out of the darkness out of the nowhere a circle of flying shadows seemed to arise and converge upon him the trap like lightning his brain worked like lightning, he moved now the trap in a flash, out of a strange bewilderment, he grasped the fact that somehow the trap of which the tocsin had so earnestly warned him- the trap that he had so self-confidently thought he would nip in the making, was even now being sprung upon him, that his own confident plan of reaching shiftel was in fact the very trap that had been laid for him. The trap, and the jaws of it were that open window, and there was no other way to turn. Those unrushing shadows, that were snarling, cursing men now, were almost upon him, blocking his retreat. Retreat? He had no mind to retreat. It would be the end, without a doubt, tonight now. He had at least been right in that. But it would not be his end alone. Inside there, in through the jaws of the trap, was shiftel. The brain works fast. In the winking of an eye, Jimmy Dale had leapt forward and had sprung for the window sill. It was intuition, perhaps, that prompted him. The figure at the table, at a slight angle away from the direct line of the window, had risen, revolver levelled. Jimmy Dale plunged forward as a man plunges into a long, low dive over the sill and to the floor. And as he plunged, like a machine-gun in action behind him, came the roar and flash of what seemed a myriad revolver shots. It happened quick, quicker almost than the brain could grasp. The bearded, greasy old figure intent evidently upon his victim alone, had overstepped the zone of safety, stepped a little forward into the line of the window, and now, with a wild cry, with suddenly upflung arms, as the hail of lead swept in, had pitched face forward to the floor. And something in Jimmy Dale's soul, amidst the turmoil that was raging physically about him, gave quiet, fervent thanks. Not for a man's death, but that the burden and guilt, if it should be termed guilt, to destroy such a one as this, one that, to save the life of the woman he loved, he must have destroyed, if he could before his own end came, had been lifted from his shoulders. Shiftel was dead. Jimmy Dale had wriggled around on the floor. He was facing the window now, firing in turn with his automatic. The low sill afforded a measure of protection. He fired from the floor over it. Shouts, yells, Curses answered him, but the rush was checked, though the shots still poured in from without. And now pandemonium seemed loosed. He glanced around him quickly. The door of the room was locked. That was obvious because they were pounding upon it now, trying to burst it in, and it had been locked quite obviously and quite logically in preparation for his entry into the trap and against the possibility of any escape through what was the only means of exit he could see except the window with its hail of bullets. It was the end. He slipped a fresh clip of cartridges into his automatic. But now he fired with more restraint. True, it was the end. But he must be careful of his ammunition now. He would need it even more when that door gave. It was an even break. Himself for Shiftel. It was worth it. It had been worth it. For her sake. Shiftel, the Phantom, was... Was he mad? this scene from the pit of the inferno that bursting door these shots that hummed with hell's venom above his head this smoke-filled acrid stinking room turned his brain shiftel that was not shiftel there nor gentleman laroque he was staring now for the first time at the still motionless figure on the floor the beard on the upturned face hung awry he reached for it and snatched it off A thousand noises, a thousand sounds, pounded at his eardrums and made mockery of the crashing blows upon the door, the vicious spat of bullets, the hideous yowling of those human wolves who had the grey seal trapped at last. This man on the floor, here dead, was not Shiftel, nor the phantom in the guise of Shiftel, nor the phantom in any other guise. It was little Sweeney, The door was yielding now, and somehow he did not understand why or how, for his brain seemed stunned. The noise and the shouts without seemed to increase in intensity. He wriggled back a little way across the room, where he could best command both window and door. He had still one clip of cartridges left. He had only one hope now, that he could use them to the last one. In another minute the door would give and "'Jimmy!' Yes, he was mad reason at last had fled from him. That was her voice, the tocsin's voice. As those shadows outside the window had suddenly closed in upon him, out of the nowhere, so this voice, the voice he loved, came suddenly to him now, out of the nowhere. "'Jimmy!' His eyes strained over in the direction of the desk. He could see nothing. There was nothing there, unless... yes... "'Yes, the floor seemed to have risen up a few inches above the surrounding level. A trap-door.' "'You!' he cried. "'Yes! Quick! Quick, Jimmy, quick!' her voice answered from below. He flung himself forward and wrenched the trap-door wide open. It was pitch-black below. He could see nothing. "'Drop, Jimmy. It's only a few feet,' she called up to him. Bolt the trap-door behind you. And oh, hurry, Jimmy, hurry!' He swung himself through the opening and dropped, then reached upward behind him and closed the trap-door. His fingers searched for the bolt, found it and shot it home. He could not stand upright; He had to stoop. The opening was so low. And it was so dark he could not see his hand before his face. Where are you? he cried out. Marie, thank God for you. Marie, where are you? Here, her voice replied. Follow me. Come this way i can't see you i can't see anything he said then quickly wait i've got a flashlight no her voice came back instantly you mustn't show a light here under any circumstances keep your head down and feel your way you can touch the walls on each side of you all right he answered he could hear her moving ahead of him half bent over he followed soft earth was under foot it was a low, narrow tunnel of some sort, that was evident. An underground passage, of course. Morley's drug den was well equipped. His brain was in chaos. Shiftel, Bunty Myers, the emerald necklace, little Sweeney. And the toxin here. Marie, I don't understand, he burst out. It was the trap I warned you about, she answered back. Yes, I know that now, he said. But Shiftel... That wasn't Schiftel up there. It was little Sweeney. He was the cat's paw, she said. He stumbled on. Where did this passage lead to? Was there no end to it? Hold on a minute, Marie. Stop, he pleaded suddenly. You. There's no time. There's not an instant to lose, she broke in swiftly. I, I, but never mind that. I can tell you in a few words what you do not understand as we go on. Are you listening, Jimmy? Listening? Listening to her? To her voice? Yes, he said, since you will not wait. Well, then, she said rapidly. The phantom was not fool enough to close his eyes to what looked as though there were a leak somewhere on the inside. The grey seal had put in an appearance with too great regularity. He thought, too, at last, as I wrote you, that you were after him, in a personal way. Therefore, he meant to strike first— and so for tonight's work he sent out his orders and his plans through the usual channels. Is that clear? Yes, said Jimmie Dale, as he groped his way along. If, then, there was a leak, she went on, the plan for the night's work would reach the grey seal also as usual. But though the phantom inclined strongly to the belief that he was the one you were after, and that the spoils of the various affairs in which you had intervened were a secondary matter he was still not absolutely sure of it. And therefore, whether he was right or wrong, and while he hoped to get you by offering what you would believe to be himself as a bait, it was not his intention to take any chances with that emerald necklace tonight, and... She broke off suddenly. I don't see how you found that out. Jimmy Dale brought up abruptly against a sharp turning in the tunnel. He bit his lips in chagrin. In the utter darkness, in spite of the cramped posture, he was forced to assume, he had tried to catch up with her, reach her. "'I followed Little Sweeney from Carrigan's. he said. He met Goldie Klein and the Weasel, and I overheard enough to know what was going on before I lost Little Sweeney again. They got away in an automobile.' "'I see,' her voice floated back. "'Well, that part of the plan was not passed out through the usual channels. All that was given out to the gang was that Shiftel would be here at Morley's tonight, to receive some swag. But it was not until the last minute, not until an hour ago, that the gang themselves were ordered to be on hand, to get you, if you came. After that, they were kept together, so that a leak then, when a leak would no longer be a lure, but a warning, was impossible. If you were only after spoils, you would know nothing about the necklace, and so would not get it. But if you were after him, you would come here, and he would get you. Do you still understand, Jimmy?' Yes, he answered. All but Little Sweeney's part. It was risky business, playing the part of Shiftel. Something might go wrong, she said, bitterly. And the Phantom takes no risks, when he can let someone else assume them. That is why he had someone play the part of Shiftel. Little Sweeney received his orders through Limpy Mac, with whom, as you know, he had worked before, not knowing that Limpy Mac and Shiftel and the unknown chief were one. And Little Sweeney, of course, thought it was a clever way to induce two crooks to steal the jewels, for Little Sweeney was made to believe that Shiftel had left the country for good. Limpy Mac supplied the disguise, which was actually, of course, the one worn by himself when he masqueraded as Shiftel. "'Good God!' gasped Jimmy Dale. "'I see now.' "'Yes,' she said. "'There's not much more.' Little Sweeney was chosen because he had been away during your later appearances, and was therefore free from suspicion that any leak had come through him. And Goldie Klein and the weasel were chosen for the same reason. They were wholly outsiders. That's all. Except my share. I had sent you no word, no note. I didn't think you could possibly know anything about tonight, and so I didn't expect you would come here. And in that respect, I thought the phantom would fail. But I knew that Schiftel was to be here at this hour, for I believed then that it was actually Schiftel himself. And so I notified the police. If they got Shiftel, then that was the end of our troubles. They... they're there now. They came just as I reached the trapdoor, but... Her voice seemed to dull a little. They haven't got the Phantom. Jimmy Dale made no answer. His lips were tight and grimly set. The Phantom was still alive, still at liberty, still free to carry on his fiendish machinations. But Jimmy Dale's face relaxed a little the next instant. It was not all utter failure and defeat. She was here. The tocsin was here with him. And he, Jimmy Dale, was alive, where but a few minutes before he had seen no chance of life. They were together, Marie and himself. In a moment more now the tunnel must end and she Her voice suddenly low and guarded, reached him. "'Wait!' she whispered. "'Stay where you are. I'll see if the way is clear.' He stood still. A minute passed, and then she called again. "'It's all right. Come on.' His hands still groped out before him as he moved forward again, and, groping, discovered that the tunnel here took an abrupt right-angled bend. And then, as he turned the corner and a cool, fresh current of air fanned his face, he found himself on a flight of steps, and he could straighten up, and there was headroom as he mounted them. And then he was standing outside a doorway on a dark and deserted street. He could hear the sound of shouts, of revolver shots. But the sounds came faintly from the distance. They were safe now, quite safe, the toxin in himself. He looked quickly, eagerly around him. He called her softly. But there was no answer. And of the tocsin, there was no sign." end of section fourteen chapter fifteen of jimmie dale and the phantom clue by frank l packard this Libervox recording is in the public domain recording by anna simon behind the doors of the underworld jimmie dale turned softly without sound upon the bunk easing his position around him were whisperings murmurings the stir of humans in troubled sleep, a hundred conglomerate, sinister sounds, and everywhere the sickly, Swedish smell of opium. His face was haggard, worn, drawn, in sharp, pinched lines, and there was a dull, wary look about the eyes that no make-up could have supplied as a smile, grim, unbidden, settled now upon his lips. Was this reality? Perhaps it was all a dream, a dream such as the poppy brought to these dregs and lees of the underworld who still in here, where no daylight had ever shone, to burn their suicidal incense to the god of grey things. Reality. Could even his existence in itself be reality? Was it any more reality than he as Smarlinghue, as one known far and wide throughout the underworld? as a hopelessly confirmed dope-fiend, represented reality. He was not Smarlinghue. There was no such person as Smarlinghue. And yet, in that very character which he had created, unkempt and ragged, he lay here now, in one of hip private rooms, hidden deep down in the chain of sub-cellars that housed perhaps the most infamous opium joint in all New York. He was not a dope-fiend. Neither taste nor drop of the drug had he ever known. And yet he had burned a thousand pills, he had toyed with the hypodermic syringe a thousand times, and before him even now lay the pipe that the Chinese attendant had brought him but a few moments since. Was it then reality, or but a dream, ceaseless, unending, whose vividness was so acute that it aped reality? Was it a dream that somewhere, always elusive always just beyond his reach always just evading him a phantom evil as no other human being was evil cunning as only one from the fiend's pit itself was cunning diced with him out of the shadows for his life and hers the toxins jimmie dale's eyes closed he was conscious of great fatigue not physical mental days of striving days of utter failure of futility, nights of unceasing, sleepless effort, lay behind him. Reality, the question answered itself. He had but to listen for an instant through these thin, flimsy partitions to know that it was not only reality, but a reality stripped of all glamour, ugly in its nakedness and its menace. It was only his brain voicing its plea for rest, giving warning that it was nearing the breaking point and that the lash could be applied too often to the slave that had prompted the groping question. He listened now for a moment, almost involuntarily. Here was one of those underground exchanges where the secrets of the underworld passed from mouth to mouth, where the gossip of the bad lands circulated, where crimes were born, where he had even heard his own death, the death of the grey seal, decreed a score of times. Whispers reached him two yeggs of the lesser breed whose names he did not know were in there their conversation was snatchy desultory due presumably to the fact that the opium was beginning to get in its work there was a reference to an uptown job of a week ago a dance-hall Fragas, that had ended in a murder the approval of the sentence passed upon one english steve by the fellow-members of his gang and the speculation as to how many of the gang english steve would succeed in bumping off before in turn English Steve finally received his own quietus. Again Jimmy Dale turned noiselessly on his bunk. He was not interested. Ten minutes before he had made a tour of the sub-cellar here, and then, playing his part as Smarlinghue, he had flung himself down on this bunk and given his order. Neither Bunty Myers nor any other of the Phantom's underlings were in evidence. He had not actually expected to find them already here. He did not even expect them later on but in half an hour, or an hour, luck might change, and they might come. It simply made Hip his first stopping place, night after night of late, because it had once been the rendezvous of the men he wanted, because it was here that some of them had met on the night the place had been raided, and because, since the night that the Phantom had laid the trap for him at Morley's, Bunty Myers and the Kitten and Spud McGuire and Muller no longer met in the back upstairs room of Wally Carrigan's club. Perhaps they would again in the future. Some of them, perhaps not. Jimmie Dale's lips tightened. It had gone very badly with the Phantom's plans that night. Apart from Little Sweeney, Spud McGuire, and Muller, in the subsequent fight with the police, had both been killed. Also, it had apparently forced Bunty Myers and the kitten into hiding. Certainly, since that night. He, Jimmie Dale, had not been able to pick up the slightest trace of either of them. He swept his hand heavily across his eyes. He was not so sure that he could wholly glory in the outcome of that night. If the phantom had received a blow, he, Jimmie Dale, had perhaps received one that was even more disastrous. The phantom was still at large, still free to pursue his heinous activities, but with the abandonment of Wally Kerrigan's back room, even if only temporarily, by Bunty Myers and the rest of his associates, who hung on the Phantom's orders. He, Jimmy Dale, had lost touch with everything and everyone connected with the Phantom. Except Mother Margot. Mother Margot. His lips twisted in a wary smile. She had been of little service to him. So far as any information he had been able to obtain from her was concerned, she might as well have been non-existent. Not that she had attempted to mislead or lie to him. He was satisfied on that score, because, being the sole connecting link with the phantom that was left to him, he had naturally watched her more carefully than ever before. As the man in the black silk mask, the man she knew as the grey seal, he had held her closely to account. But he was convinced that of the phantom's plans and movements since that night at Morley's, she was as ignorant as he was himself. Where before she had been the mouthpiece of the voice, as she called the phantom, her office now had apparently become a sinecure. It was as though the Phantom, failing in the supreme effort he had made to find the leak among his trusted subordinates, and afraid perhaps to place further trust anywhere, had withdrawn himself completely from every one of those that formerly he had moved as pawns upon his miserable chessboard of crime. But that did not mean the tocsin's safety. The Phantom, as she had so well named him, master of impersonation. The Phantom, alias Gentleman-Laroque, alias Shiftel, alias Limpy Mac, alias Heaven alone knew what else. The Phantom, with his score of domiciles, if he meant now to play a lone hand, was a far more dangerous antagonist than ever before, one far harder to come at, more elusive, more safely and deeply entrenched behind... Jimmie Dale's hand reached swiftly out for the opium pipe that lay on the stand beside the bunk. A footstep, one accompanied by a low, soft swish, was coming along the boarded corridor outside. It was probably one of the Chinese attendants, and the swish was the usual swish of the slippered feet. But if there was any one den or dive in the Badlands more than another where it meant literally life and death to preserve the character of Smarlinghue from all suspicion, it was here, in Hip Foos, where a whisper was alone sufficient to bring down upon him, darting from its every corner and crevice, the drug-crazed rat-horde of the underworld that infested the place. The step came nearer. Jimmy Dale, the pipe apparently at his lips, lay back again upon the bunk. If the phantom were playing a lone hand now, if he had slouched off, as dangerous and unfit, the tools he had formerly employed, then he, Jimmy Dale, since the toxin was obviously steadfast in her determination to afford him no opportunity of picking up any further clue, was facing a blank wall. If, however, the veil that had shrouded the movements of the phantom and all those who had been connected with him since that night at Morley's was simply the natural caution inspired by what had so nearly been complete disaster, then certainly, sooner or later, he jimmie dale would pick up the trail again of those such as were left of them who once had congregated at wally kerrigan's that was why he was here in hip foos on the chance that either through their appearance in person or through the mumbled gossip was the freer and dance like this where the incense burned to the god of poppy loosened men's and women's tongues he might find the lost threads again he asked no more than that only to go on to the end while there was yet time. And he was afraid tonight, afraid with a great fear. How did he even know that it was not already too late? How did he know that in her battle of wits with the phantom, which she insisted in waging alone, unaided, with her life at stake, the tocsin, brave, resourceful, clever though she was, had not already... Through half-closed eyes, Jimmy Dale watched the curtain that hung across the doorway, Yes, undoubtedly. The footstep was no longer in evidence, and undoubtedly the curtain was being drawn stealthily aside. He made no movement. The opening widened, widened still further. And suddenly the blood went whipping through Jimmy Dale's veins in a mad, elated tide, and weariness was gone. Reward. The light was dim, low, flickering, but he could see well enough. It was not one of the Chinese attendants. It was the shawled head of an old hag that was peering in there. Mother Margot. Still, Jimmy Dale gave no sign that he was aware of the other's presence. It was a reward at last for the days and nights that were gone. Once before, she had come here to meet Bunty Myers. Once before, this had been the rendezvous. What else would she be here for tonight? He had evidently been right, then, in hoping more from Hip than from any other place and it did not mean that she had lied to him as the grey seal, either. It might very well be, and probably was, that, since last he had communicated with her, the phantom had suddenly broken silence and through her was issuing his orders again. She stood there on the threshold now, peering toward the bunk, shading her eyes with her hand as though, even in the dim light, it helped her to better the better to distinguish objects. And for a moment she hesitated, then she came slowly through the doorway and let the curtain fall behind her. "'There's you, ain't it, Smarley?' she whispered. Jimmy Dale sat up on the bunk and blinked at her. There was something of grim, sardonic humour in the situation. They had been formally introduced, that night, at Wally Kerrigan's, and she knew Smarlinghue as Smarlinghue. But between Smarlinghue and the man she knew, yes, and obeyed as the grey seal, There was a gulf that she had never crossed. The trumps were very much in his hands. Jimmy Dale blinked again, rubbed his eyes, and stared at her. Oh, hello, he said, a little ungraciously. It's Mother Margot, eh? She nodded without speaking. Well? It was Smarlingy who spoke. What's the idea? I ain't standing any free rides to Dreamland. The price has gone up. Mother Margot shook her head. "'Nobody's asking you to,' she replied a little tartly. "'I ain't never been on that kind of stuff, thank God. I'm looking for someone, that's what I'm here for.' Jimmy Dale permitted a slightly malicious grin to flicker across his lips. "'You didn't seem to fall in love with me the night I got shown out at Wally's,' he observed. "'So I guess it ain't me. Try next door.' She came a little closer and lowered her voice. "'No, it ain't for use," she said. "'But maybe youse'll do, if you ain't too stewed on coke.' Jimmy Dale did not answer for a moment. Was the entree into the Phantom's circle here at last? An entree in the sense that, if only in a minor way, he was to be offered the opportunity of participating in the activities of Gentleman LaRocque's, alias the Phantom's gang? She was looking for someone. Who? She was, he knew, the one through whom the Phantom, always invisible himself, issued all his orders— who, then, would she be searching for tonight save the very man that he himself would willingly pay any price to find? Bunty Myers for one, the kitten for another. "'I ain't been here long enough without being buttered in on to get stewed,' said Jimmie Dale caustically. She came still closer, peering at him through her spectacles, drawing her shawl with quick nervous little clutches tighter around her shoulders and throat. And then suddenly her whole manner changed, she seemed frightened, almost in despair. "'Yes, you was all right. I can see that now,' she burst out in a hoarse, shaken whisper. "'That was the only thing I was scared of when I see youse in here, that youse be stewed. Listen, Smiley, I got to get some help, and I want youse to help me. There ain't no one on the whole east side could do it the way youse could, if youse only will.' Jimmie Dill lounged back on the bunk. Mother Margot would at least not find him eager. "'Thanks for the bouquet,' he grinned. "'The last time all you handed me was a frozen mitt.'
0: "'Ah, oh, forget it,'
1: she whispered passionately. "'For God's sake, forget that, Smiley. I ain't handing you no jolly. Everybody knows Smarlinghue. you. And everybody knows there ain't the dump in the badlands that he ain't wise to, and where he don't get the glad hand. And and everybody knows they can trust Smiling you.' I'm trusting yous now. Say, give me your word, you'll keep your trap closed about me, whether you sits in the game or not, and I'll come across. Sure," said Jimmie Dale. "That don't cost nothing. I've never seen you tonight if that suits you. Go ahead, spill it." Mother Margot glanced furtively around her. She listened for a moment to the voices, grown thicker now and almost inaudible, coming through the partition. Then she leaned close to Jimmie Dale. Her lips scarcely moved. "'I'll get mine if I'm hurt, or you snitches on me,' she breathed in a frightened, jerky way. "'But I got to do it. I got to do it. I've been looking for hours, ever since early in the afternoon, and it ain't no good. I've looked everywhere, and I can't find him, and and I didn't darst get too nosy with questions. You understand, Smarley. It's English Steve. I got to get a message to English Steve, and if I don't he goes out.' "'My God, Smarley! Youse gets that! Don't youse? He goes out!' Jimmie Dale stared at her. He experienced a sudden loss of the elation, the uplift, that he had known but a moment before in such full measure. English Steve! All the underworld knew about English Steve. It was no secret. Even those two hop-fighters in the next room, who ranked little higher than stalls and steerers in the citizenry of the Badlands, knew all about English Steve and his gang-troubles. He, Jimmy Dale, knew all about it. As Larry the Bat, he'd even been personally acquainted with English Steve in the olden days. Therefore, he also knew, which was the one thing that concerned him now, that English Steve had nothing to do with Bunty Myers. And it was of Bunty Myers, as the first step toward picking up, again, the Phantom's trail, they had expected Mother Margot to unburden herself.' His eyes shifted to the ragged sleeve of his coat, to the dirty, frayed, protruding wristband of his shirt. He had hoped for too much, evidently. Perhaps he should have known better, but that did not lessen the disappointment. True, he had called this woman from her pushcart on Thompson Street only that morning, and had talked to her as the grey seal over the telephone, and he had been thoroughly satisfied then that she was as ignorant as he was of either Bunty Myers or the Phantom's movements but until a moment ago, in view of her appearance here, he had thought that in the meantime the phantom had communicated with her. Well, he had been wrong, it seemed, and tonight was to be only another night of hollow results added to the nights that had gone before. He had lost track of how many. It didn't matter. He had hoped for too much, that was all. She clutched at his sleeve frantically, in pitiful pleading. You ain't afraid, are you, Smarling?' she quavered. youse don't have to get in between. All I'm asking you is to help me find him, and if you's finds him first, to slip him a message. You don't have to do nothing else.' "'What's the message?' inquired Jimmie Dale, a little gruffly. "'Just tell him to duck his nut out of New York tonight, that's all. Just tell him that.' Jimmie Dale, as Smarlinghue, shook his head critically. "'He ain't that kind,' He said i suppose you're talking about him and his gang but everybody that ain't deaf knows he swore he'd get every last one of the outfit he used to work with before they got him if they tried any funny business what's the use of handing him any steer like that never use mind about that," said mother margot quickly he'll go if you tells him it was me sent the word he ain't for running into a trap is he nobody but a fool would do that." jimmie dale appeared to ponder the matter "'What's the trap?' he demanded, after a moment. "'I don't know,' she answered miserably. "'Well, then,' prodded Jimmie Dale. "'If you don't know that, how do you know it's tonight they're laying for him? And where do you come in? He ain't the long-lost son you've discovered, is he?' She wrung her hands suddenly. "'Oh, my God, Smarley!' she whispered wildly. "'We're losing time, and—and and I'm afraid. Maybe it's too late even now. There ain't no use asking me questions that I can't answer.' "'I don't know how, and I don't know where, but I know English Steve gets his tonight if he ain't tipped off in time. For God's sake, don't ask me nothing more. I owe it to English Steve to wise him up. I got to do it if I can, and I'm asking youse to help me. Youse will, won't youse, Smarley? Ah, oh, for God's sake, say's youse will. Yous won't be sorry. I, I'll make it up to youse. Mother Margot don't never forget.' Jimmy Dale swung his legs slowly over the edge of the bunk. Well, why not? Mother Margot's advent had brought him anything but what he had hoped for, but he was certainly no worse off than he'd been before her arrival. English Steve and his gang affairs were too well known, too public, to warrant any suspicion that there was any ulterior object in Mother Margot's actions. He had not the slightest doubt but that the gang had laid their plans for the removal of English Steve tonight. He was quite on the cards. In some way, Mother Margot had got an inkling of this. She probably owed English Steve a debt of some kind, due, as probably, to some crooked work in the past in which they had been engaged together. That, too, was quite on the cards. Well, why not? He had no particular interest in English Steve, but certainly he had no desire to stand by and allow a murder, even the murder of a crook, to be committed if he could prevent it. And then, too, there was another angle to the affair. Mother Margot was a friend of Smarlinghue, might well mean far more than mother margot constrained by fear to be the unwilling ally of the grey seal and besides from now until dawn his own search will be continued through the underworld anyhow and where he looked for bunty myers or the kitten he would as naturally as though that were his sole quest look for english steve all right said jimmie dale abruptly as he stood up i'll help you if i can i guess i know a few dumps you don't but you keep on going yourself We'll cover more ground that way and get on quicker, and it wouldn't do either of us any good to be seen hunting together neither. Beat it!' Mother Margot caught his hand impulsively. "'I knew yous would, Smiley! I knew yous would!' she whispered in a choked voice. "'God bless you, Smiley! You are—' It was you who grinned a little sheepishly, and you who spoke. "'Ah, forget it!' he said. "'I thought you said we was losing time.' He brushed past her toward the doorway. "'I'll go out by the lane. You go out the other way. See?' "'Yes,' she answered. "'But—' "'So long,' said Smarlinghue, alias Jimmy Dale, and vanished through the doorway.'" End of chapter 15 Chapter 16 of Jimmy Dale and the Phantom Clue by Frank L. Packard this LibriFox recording is in the public domain, recording by Anna Simon English Steve It was growing late, near midnight. Through the murk of an uninviting, almost ominous looking basement entrance, whose light, such as it was, seeped upward to the sidewalk, Jimmy Dale emerged and stood for a moment, staring up and down the dirty, shabby street. A grim smile was playing on his lips. Behind him, down those few dark, rickety steps up which he had just come, and thence through an ill-lighted little cobbler's shop, where a cobbler, who was a cobbler in but little more than name, held an inner door against the invasion of undesirables and the law, was a thug's den than which New York knew no worse. Debauchery and crime, unbridled and unlicensed, held sway there. None entered save the initiated or those the initiated lured there to fleece and work their will upon. Likewise it was a refuge from the law, and, as a refuge, was without its peer. Mickey the cobbler might not be a very good cobbler or a past master of his art, but he was a cheery sort and always paid his bills, and never overcharged the poverty-stricken neighbourhood that innocently believed it supported him with his patronage. So why should it not be safe?' Mickey the cobbler stood high in the estimation of the community, and therefore brought no suspicion upon himself from the police. Jimmie Dale shrugged his shoulders. What did it matter? There were dozens of places like that, and he had been in and out of dozens of them since he had left Mother Margot at Hip Foo's a few hours ago. What did it matter? The degree of pest hole from which he had just come in so far as he was concerned, it had yielded him nothing and in that respect it was like all the rest. His search tonight had been doubly fruitless, because he had had a double errand. He had found no trace of Bunty Myers on his own account, or of English Steve on Mother Margot's. Again he shrugged his shoulders. He had about given the latter up. As a matter of fact, it had only been secondary in any case, and yet he had kept faith with Mother Margot. He had visited English Steve's lodging-house, and he had visited the known haunts of the gang that now held English Steve's life forfeit. And all this before even he had widened his search to embrace the secret pest-holes of crime Land, such as the one he had just left. And he had been rewarded only by failure everywhere. He could go on, of course, and he would go on, until dawn broke, prompted by the prime urge to find Bunty Myers. But now, for the moment, the weariness of it all seemed to be creeping back upon him again, and this time not without its physical as well as its mental demands, for at least a measure of consideration. His eyes roved down the street. At the corner, drawn up to the curb, there was a lunch-waggon. He was tired and hungry. A queer, whimsical little smile touched his lips. What could be better? A lunch-waggon and you, unkempt, ragged, dissolute in appearance, went well and in perfect harmony one with the other." jimmie dale turned abruptly and walked to the corner here he climbed the three wooden abbreviated steps that permitted entrance to the antiquated vehicle and sidled up to the counter the lunch wagon for the moment was without customers the proprietor rousing himself from a doze laid a mug of hot coffee and a sandwich on the counter at jimmie dale's mumbled request slid a pot of mustard in the general direction of the sandwich and subsided again into semi-unconsciousness upon some amazingly existent resting-place in the crowded space behind the counter. Jimmy Dale stared around him, and, as he ate, a sort of ironic facetiousness settled upon him. A picture of the St. James Club, with its polished silver and its snowy napery, rose before his mind's eye. Here he was Smarlinghue. There he was Jimmy Dale, the millionaire. He was almost beginning to wonder which of the two was his real, actual entity. Jimmie Dale? Smiling you? "'The Grey Seal? "'If it were ever known!' His eyes fastened on the ungraceful proprietor, whose white coat was long overdue at the washtub and whose white cook's head was limp and grease-spotted. It seemed a far cry to the white-haired, immaculate, perfectly trained Jason, his own butler, who, too, sometimes served him with coffee and sandwiches. His mind mulled on. He kept staring about him. It was strange. The place somehow seemed familiar. Well, why shouldn't it? He had been in a lunch wagon before. Not this one, probably. But there wasn't much difference in the genus lunch wagon, was there? No, that wasn't it. It seemed rather to be striving to revive a memory that somehow had to do with... Yes, he had it now. English Steve. But that was years ago, back in the days when he, Jimmy Dale, was Larry the Bat in the underworld instead of the smiling Smarlinghue of today it was in a lunch wagon just like this english steve had been there and two or three others of like ilk they would adjourned to english steve's room for a game of cards and he jimmie dale as larry the bat had accepted the invitation to join them well what of it that wasn't where english steve lived now english steve had gone up in his profession since he had lived in what was little better than a shed behind old michael's ship shanter shop and he jimmie dale had already been to english steve's more pretentious if still seedy, quarters of today. Strange, the stirring of that memory. What was it trying to suggest? That English Steve still. It was absurd, of course. That was years ago. It was the last place in all New York that anyone would look for English Steve today. The last place that anyone would. Jimmie Dale's fingers fumbled in his pockets and extracted a coin. He laid it on the counter, mumbled again at the proprietor, this time a good night and shuffled his way out to the street the last place the phrase battered his mind now if that were so it was the one place to look and why was it so absurd there was more than one man in new york who maintained two establishments and on a far more extensive scale without publishing the fact broadcast english steve was a crook of no mean order and such an arrangement might well have stood him in good stead more than once in respect of the police and for that matter with his erstwhile associates as it perhaps was serving him now at this minute. With his increasing prominence, his rise in the sordid realm of crime, English Steve had publicly moved into a more exclusive neighbourhood among the elite of Crime Land, but it might well be that he continued to pay rent for his former lodging, without anyone being the wiser for it, save old Michael, his landlord, whose shop was stocked with merchandise which consisted mainly of ships stores and fittings purloined by the wharf rats along the river front birds of a feather. It was worth putting to the test, at least. Certainly it was a tangible, definite objective, something he had not had before all night. He hurried now, twisting and turning through alleyways and narrow, darkened streets, until finally he had worked his way into a neighborhood down near the East River shore. The buildings were fewer here, more scattered. There was a generous sprinkling of vacant lots, few lights and no pedestrians. He halted, at last, in front of a low, squat, dingy building, with large double doors and a grimy, unwashed show-window, through which latter, from the rays of a distant street-lamp, was just discernible a display of miscellaneous second-hand ship's fittings, a heap of tarpaulin, ropes, blocks, tackles, and other articles of like nature. This was old Michael's. If the man had another name, he, Jimmy Dale, did not know what it was. There was only one old Michael on the east side, and that was enough. The place was in darkness. It stood detached, unprotected by either fence or enclosure, and Jimmy Dale now made his way rapidly around to the rear. Here a sort of extension, in the shape of an exaggerated lean-to, projected out from the back of the building. It was here that in the days gone by, a miserable, barely weatherproof hole, English Steve had made his home. And here, too, as in front, the place was in utter darkness. Jimmy Dale stepped to the door and knocked softly upon it. There was no answer. He knocked louder, insistently. There was still no response. And then he smiled a little ironically at himself. He had come quite a long way, and quite probably on a fool's errand. Certainly, English Steve did not appear either to be at home or in hiding here. He stood at the door for a moment, frowning. He had begun to doubt very much now that English Steve had ever cast eyes on the place again from the day he had taken up his quarters near the Bowery. But mere doubt did not in any way disprove the theory that somehow back there in the lunch wagon had suddenly taken possession of him. English Steve might very well be absent at this precise moment, and might very well at the same time still be old Michael's tenant. Jimmy Dale's jaws snapped suddenly together. He had come quite far enough to make it worth while to find out that much anyhow. He tried the door. It was locked, of course. From one of the upright pockets in the leather girdle beneath his threadbare vest, Jimmy Dale drew out a little blued steel picklock, and from another a diminutive, though nonetheless powerful, flashlight. For a moment the trained fingers worked swiftly at the lock. Then the door swung open, and Jimmy Dale stepped inside. He closed the door quietly behind him, and for an instant stood still, listening. Then the white ray of the flashlight lanced suddenly through the blackness, darting here and there over walls and floor. A smile crept grimly to Jimmy Dale's lips. English Steve, for the moment, might not be at home. But he, Jimmy Dale, or his intuition, or what had seemed perhaps a far-fetched deduction from a memory of years gone by, or whatever else one might call it, had after all not been at fault. English Steve still lived here, when it suited English Steve to do so. The room was in no way changed since the night he had played cards here with English Steve. Even the man's clothes were strewn about, here across a chair, there even on the floor. An empty beer bottle, and beside it a slab of cheese and a portion of a loaf of bread, stood upon the table. But it was not these proofs of occupancy that caused Jimmy Dale's smile to tighten now. They might belong to anybody." The flashlight was holding steadily on a large half-pace photograph, cut from a Sunday supplement, that was tacked on the wall. He remembered it very well, because English Steve, while still sober that night, had pointed it out with pride, and thereafter, when not so sober, had pointed it out another dozen times. It was a treasured possession of English Steve, and whatever else English Steve might have left behind him, had he vacated the place for good, he most certainly would not have left that it did not amount to much it was utterly valueless but to english steve it had been and still was obviously a source of intense if somewhat childish gratification it was a photograph intended to demonstrate the extent of a record crowd at a race-course somewhere and in the foreground perhaps the most prominent figure of all the photographer by chance had snapped the heavy black moustached rather rakish looking figure of english steve jimmie dale leant back against the table in the centre of the room well that was settled and for such satisfaction as the establishment of his theory afforded him his trip had had its reward but what was he to do now wait here for english steve's return english steve might return in an hour or in two days from now or never if mother margot was right and english steve fell into whatever trap was set for him to-night on the other hand to resume a blind search through the underworld again seemed to offer no greater likelihood of finding the man than was presented by the possibility of english steve returning here indeed if the man were keeping under cover as seemed more than probable since after hours of search he jimmie dale had been able to find not a single trace of the other then the chance that right here was where english steve might be met with sooner than anywhere else was not without its logical argument. And yet... The flashlight was still circling inquisitively about the room. Jimmy Dale's eyes followed the ray abstractedly. It passed across the open doorway of an inner room. There had been a cot in there, he remembered, English Steve's bedroom. Mechanically, he moved forward in that direction from the table, and then suddenly, with a low, sharp cry as the flashlight shot forward into the inner room, he halted, hard-faced, staring ahead of him, across the threshold. He had been right in his theory, doubly right, for the search ended here. And Mother Margot had been right, and her fears had been only too well justified. Sprawled across the floor, his head in a dark crimson pool, lay the body of English Steve. For the fraction of a second, no more, Jamie Dale remained motionless. And then he was across the threshold and on his knees beside the other. Yes, the man was dead. Jimmy Dale turned a little then, and the flashlight circled swiftly in all directions about him. There was no weapon, only the bullet hole in English Steve's right temple. The end of the search, the warning that Mother Margot had tried to give, had come too late. English Steve had been murdered. So the gang had had their way, had they? It was dirty, miserable work, crook though English Steve might be. Jimmie Dale's jaws were clamped now as he leant forward again and drew a paper, already protruding as though it had half dropped out when the man had fallen, from the inside pocket of English Steve's coat. It was a folded sheet of foolscap size. He opened it out, his flashlight playing upon it. In the folds was a small newspaper clipping, while the paper itself was covered with a rough design or plan as of some interior. He stared in a perplexed way at the clipping for a moment. It had been cut from the middle of a paragraph, and contained only one complete sentence. But from the sentence itself, and the fragments of context that preceded and followed, it was obviously the report of some jewellery auction. He read it once, and again. Unusually good value. The pendant was finally knocked down to Mr. Max Leinstall after spirit bidding, "'For four thousand three hundred and eighty-five dollars. A cluster ring set with the—' From the clipping, Jimmy Dale looked again at the roughly drawn sketch. Then his eyes reverted to the still form on the floor. A minute, two, passed as he stood there. Something seemed to tighten in Jimmy Dale's throat. "'Poor devil!' he whispered, and thrust the clipping and paper abruptly into his own pocket he turned away then and began a rapid search of the two rooms still another ten minutes passed and then jimmie dale stepped out into the night again locked the door behind him and hurrying now headed back into the east side end of chapter sixteen chapter seventeen of jimmie dale and the phantom clue by frank l packard this LibriFox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. A Devil's Alibi Jimmy Dale's face was drawn in sharp, set lines as he went swiftly along. In a sense, the brutal, sordid affair was clear enough. The clipping spoke for itself. There had been an auction sale of jewellery, and Max Leinstal had bought in a pendant worth roughly four thousand dollars. The drawing was probably... A sketch of old man Leinstal's place. Jimmy Dale nodded his head sharply. Everybody knew Leinstal. Max Leinstal was a prominent, if somewhat eccentric, figure on the east side, who lived alone in a combined office and dwelling that consisted of the ground floor of a small two-story house on a cross street within a block of the Bowery. The old man, sometimes on his own account, sometimes acting for private interests on commission, or even for the bigger jewellers who for very justifiable business reasons did not wish to appear at the auctions was a large and well-known buyer of second-hand jewellery of the better sort this was quite plain and the inference from it seemed equally so english steve had seen the account of the auction knew that a valuable pendant was in linesthal's possession and had in some way managed to obtain the information that had enabled him to make a rough working sketch of the old jeweller's flat. Following out the inference to its logical conclusion, therefore, English Steve either had already robbed Max Leinstall of the pendant, or had proposed to do so before the night was out. A puzzled light for an instant crept into Jimmy Dale's dark eyes. What was the date of the clipping? It might be a week old. The auction might have been held days ago. He shook his head impatiently, as though irritated at his own momentary stupidity it was nothing of the sort or if it was then what he had found in english steve's pocket meant nothing at all no robbery of any such nature as that could be committed without its being known everywhere in the underworld at least within a short time after the police were on the scene therefore unless the robbery had been committed yesterday or the day before or a week ago which it most certainly had not since nothing was known of it in the underworld, the clipping, to have any present significance, must almost certainly have been cut from a paper of very recent date, for English Steve would realise that there was no guarantee, rather the opposite, in fact, that Max Leinstall would keep the pendant in his possession for any length of time, before he disposed of it again. The whole thing narrowed down, then, to two suppositions. English Steve had not yet carried out his plans when he was shot down, presumably by the gang, or he had already committed the robbery, just previous to his murder, and the pendant was then, at that time, either in his immediate possession or hidden somewhere, probably in his rooms. But he, Jimmy Dale, had searched and had found nothing. It might still be there, still craftily hidden, of course. But if not, and the robbery had been committed then the alternative seemed blatantly obvious. The gang, sworn to English Steve's destruction, had found the pendant in their victim's possession, and taken it. That was all. Jimmy Dale went on, traversing block after block, and now a queer, whimsical smile brought a softer expression to his face. Those papers were damning evidence, and he had appropriated them without right or reason. He shrugged his shoulders. Perhaps It had been impulse. He admitted that. But it was not an impulse that he regretted, or would undo now if he could. If it had been only an intended robbery, one that had not known fruition, there was sorrow and shame enough for someone, perhaps her mother, perhaps an old father, certainly someone who loved even English Steve, without needlessly adding to a measure already so miserably full. There would be time enough for those papers to come into the hands of the police if they were needed, to point the way to a more thorough search of English Steve's rooms than he, Jimmy Dale, had made. Or, failing that, to English Steve's erstwhile gang and present murderers, in whose possession the pendant then must be. The softer expression vanished, and there came again a troubled look into Jimmy Dale's face. There was still another angle to the affair, one he did not like. If the robbery had been committed, it must have taken place, say, quite a little while before midnight, in order to have allowed English Steve time enough for its actual accomplishment, the time to get back from Max Leinstahl's to Old Michael's, and, on top of that, the time to account for what had then occurred in his own rooms. That, then, would be long before he, Jimmy Dale, had started out from the lunch wagon, and had anything come to the ears of the police up to that time, it would have certainly have been known in the results and there had been not even a whisper of it. Why, then, had not Max Leinstall sent out an alarm? Or rather, what had happened to Max Leinstall? Jimmy Dale shook his head again. No, that was putting it in its worst phase. English Steve would not have hesitated at anything in the nature of violence, perhaps if, for instance, he had been caught in the act. But it was far more likely that his work would have been done so secretly and successfully that it had not even now been discovered. And yet, at a fairly early hour of night, before possibly the old jeweller had even gone to bed, to break in, blow a safe and... Jimmie Dale shrugged his shoulders. The answer lay at Max Leinstall's. He was going there now, he smiled grimly to himself, via the lane and the back door, secretively, like a thief himself. It would hardly do for Smollinghue to present himself at the front door, and, if Max Leinstall responded to the summons, inquire if a robbery had been perpetrated. It would be even worse if a robbery, and perhaps violence to Max Leinstall, had taken place should Smarlinghue have been seen in or near the house. And that was the vital question. He could not morally sidestep it. The old jeweller lived alone. Had Max Leinstall come to any harm? Jimmy Dale's pace slowed now suddenly to one of almost hesitancy. He was very near the place now, It was just around the corner. Perhaps it would be safer if, even by the back door, instead of Smarlinghue, it was Jimmy Dale who went. But it was quite a little distance from here to the sanctuary, where through one door Smarlinghue could enter, and through the French window on the squalid courtyard, and thence to the lane, Jimmy Dale could emerge. No, it would take too much time to go to the sanctuary. And besides, it could serve no real purpose. He did not propose to be seen, Or heard. If nothing had happened in Max Leinstal's place yet, nothing would happen now, since English Steve was dead, and he, Jimmy Dale, would leave as unostentatiously as he entered. If, on the other hand, the break had been made, he would leave with equal unostentatiousness, and the police in some way, anonymously, could be notified. Even as Smarlinghue then, well known as Smarlinghue was in that neighbourhood, he was quite safe. He slipped suddenly into the mouth of a lane that opened beside him. The slouching gate was gone now. He was running swiftly, silently in the darkness. There was no question of locating Max Leinstall's backyard. His years of Larry the Bat and the Old Sanctuary, of Smarlinghue and the New, where his life had literally depended upon it, had taught him every inch of the network of lanes and alleyways in this section of the east side. And now, with a lithe spring, Jimmy Dale was over a fence, and in another instant, running across the yard, was crouched before a door that opened almost on a level with the ground. There was no light anywhere. He could hear no sound, save the distant rumble of the elevated from the direction of the bowery. And then the slim, sensitive fingers of Jimmy Dale, no less deft or agile for the grime and uncared-for appearance that was theirs as an integral part of Smarlinghue, We're at work again, with the little picklock. The door opened, closed, without a sound. Jimmy Dale stood inside. It was as though a shadow of but a moment ago, outside in the darkness and silence, had moved and vanished. But it was not dark here in the narrow hallway. A little ahead, a faint light showed through from a partially open doorway. Nor was it silent. Voices reached him though the words themselves were not distinguishable. Jimmy Dale stood for an instant, motionless. What did it mean? A mares nest? A late visitor? Something equally commonplace? The sketch in his pocket reproduced itself in a mental picture before his eyes. The four rooms from front to rear each had a door opening into the one next to it, and each had a door opening on this narrow passage here. The room ahead from which the light came was the second one from the front, the room that showed the safe marked on the plan. There had been no light showing as he had come along the lane, of course, because the rooms were on the opposite side of the house, and there were apparently no windows in the hallway here. What did it mean? If nothing had happened, nothing would happen since English Steve was dead. His mind insisted on reiterating that statement. What was it, then? An ordinary, perhaps, business visitor? Or the aftermath of the robbery in the shape of the presence of the police? He stole forward cautiously, without sound, hugging the wall. The voices grew more distinct. And then, back against the wall, himself unseen, protected both by the angle at which he stood and the angle of the partially open door, he stood staring into the lighted room. Reality. Strange how that thought had obsessed him all night. Well, at least, this wasn't reality. Or else his reason was in collapse, his sanity a gibing mockery. The room was evidently used by Max Leinstall as a bedroom, even though he kept his safe there. For the bed was there, too, and Max Leinstall, in his nightclothes, sat lashed, a prisoner in a chair. He could understand that. But after that, he was either mad or it was all a myth. A man was kneeling at the safe. He knew the man. He knew him quite well. He'd even been with him that evening, had even left him not more than half an hour ago. Only he had left the man lying dead upon the floor of a miserable shack with a bullet hole through his right temple. And it was the dead man who was kneeling there now at the safe. The man at the safe was English Steve. Brain and vision now both seemed blurred. Jimmy Dale hung there. He was trying to fight his way out of some mental morass, wasn't he? The man was dead, and he was lying in a pool of blood miles away, and yet he was here, moving, yes, and speaking, just as though he were alive. "'Come on now, come across,' the man snapped at the bound figure in the chair. "'You know what'll happen if you don't. You know me, don't you? You see me often enough around these parts?' "'Yes. I... I know you.' Max Leinstall was an old man, and it was perhaps only the cords that held him from collapsing in his chair, for his face was death-like in its fear. "'You... you're English Steve.' "'Bull's-eye!' snapped the man at the safe again. "'Well, that ought to be enough to teach you what's good for your health. You get just one minute. Take your choice. If I have to blow the safe... I might as well set you up against it for the pad. Get me? Now then, what's the combination? Quick!' He reached out and gave a sudden, vicious wrench at the leg of the chair. I- "'I'll tell you,' the old man cried out hoarsely. "'Wait, I- I'll tell you. It's twenty-eight and a half left. Nineteen. Jimmy Dale was not listening. Was he really mad? Yes, perhaps— But whether the man was dead or not, he was robbing the safe. And he, Jimmy Dale, could do nothing. He was Smarlinghue. To interfere with any crook's work was to bring the enmity of the underworld down upon the offender. It was the law of the underworld. It would destroy Smarlinghue. Better that Linesthal should lose his jewels. A thousand times better. Smarlinghue was the one chance he, Jimmy Dale, had to find the phantom. The one chance he had to stand between the woman that he loved and the death that threatened her. With the doors of the underworld once closed against Smilinghue, there was no... Slowly, as though the act were almost subconscious, his hand crept now toward his pocket, crept into it, snuggled around the butt of his automatic, and, snuggling, tightened suddenly in a fierce, convulsive grip. The safe was open now, and the man kneeling there had his back to line in the chair. His side faced to the door. He was ransacking the interior of the safe. Books and papers were being flung on the floor. A diamond pendant glistened in the light. It was laid on the table beside the safe. There were other jewels. They began to make a glittering little heap. But it was curious, strangely curious, that the heavy black moustache should suddenly have seemed to sag down at one side. Strange that the man should be taking the time now to pause in his work, to twirl at it, like some sophisticated dandy. No, it was off. And now the man was carefully readjusting it. Through Jimmy Dale's veins, as though some floodgates were suddenly rent asunder, his blood was racing now, in a wild, mad, surging tide. Le It was Gentleman Le alias the Phantom, the master of impersonation. Yes, he understood now. There was no madness in his brain. He understood... It was hellish in its cunning. A devil's alibi. The Phantom, if he were not entirely playing a lone hand through lack of trust in his erstwhile tools and pawns, was at least playing the major role. A safe role. His alibi was a dead man. Swift as lightning flashes, Jimmy Dale's mind worked now. Yes, he understood. It was the Phantom, not the gang, who had murdered English Steve. It was the Phantom, not English Steve, who had taken that clipping from the paper, made that sketch, and placed them in the dead man's pocket. Max Linestal would be robbed and would swear that it was English Steve. The Phantom had but a moment gone, taken care to make doubly sure of that point. Then English Steve would be found murdered. The police would attribute the murder, without an instant hesitation, to the gang who had boasted everywhere that they would take English Steve's life and to the gang, too, having failed to find the jewels elsewhere, would be attributed, even as he, Jimmy Dale, had thought might be the case, the possession of the proceeds of the robbery from Max Leinstall's safe. That was why the robbery was being pulled here now, in so open and barefaced a manner, intentionally so, as part of the plan, an integral, vital part of the plan, to establish the alibi that English Steve could never now refute the room seemed to swim before Jimmy Dale's eyes. Red. Smarlinghue. What did it matter now if Smarlinghue were seen? If Smarlinghue lived or died, so that this inhuman fiend found his end, too, at the same time? That was what Smarlinghue existed for. The final reckoning. The end. And it was here now. There was the man he had sought through days and nights of ceaseless, torturing effort, the Phantom primal, elemental, his soul itself seemed stripped of all else but a blind, savage. What was that? the doorbell wasn't it? The doorbell and two quick, short rings. Jimmie Dale, about to step forward into the other room, his automatic already flung forward, instinctively held motionless for an instant, and in that instant he saw the Phantom leap to his feet and roll to the electric light switch just beside the safe. There was a click the house was in utter blackness. But Jimmy Dale was in action now. A signal, of course, those two rings. Why? From whom? But it didn't matter now. Nothing mattered save to come to grips with the Phantom in there. It was pitch black, but he knew what the other's next move would be as well as though the room were still alight. With a bound, Jimmy Dale was through the doorway and into the room. The table, those jewels, they were what the Phantom had come here for, and signal or no signal, be its meaning what it might, the phantom would not leave without them if he could help it. Jimmy Dale brought up against the table with a crash, his hand swept swiftly across its top, and as he brushed the jewels to the floor, to safety, a hand, groping it seemed, touched his, and was instantly drawn away before he could grasp it. A snarl came out of the darkness on the other side of the table, a cry of terror rang out from the old man lashed in the chair and then a blinding flash, the roar of a revolver shot, as the Phantom fired. And missed. And Jimmy Dale laughed now, laughed with the tongue-flame of the shot still hot upon his cheek, and, hurling the table out of the way, he flung himself forward again. He could not see. He could only spring straight for the spot where the shot had come from. He could not fire in return. He might hit the old man in the chair. His fingers closed, gripped at a sleeve, tightened and his other hand, with clubbed automatic, swung upward in a fierce, short-armed jab. And his soul cried out in joy as he felt the blow go home. There was a sharp cry of pain, then a sudden, furious wrench that tore the sleeve from Jimmy Dale's grasp, and then the sound, deadened now, almost lost in Max Leinstall's terrified cries, of a step racing across the floor. Jimmy Dale's jaws clamped hard together to use his flashlight was to offer himself as a target that would not be missed a second time but the man was making for the door of course jimmie dill leapt back in the darkness across the room too late the door slammed he heard it locked he heard the footsteps racing down the little hallway toward the back entrance but if there was no time to unlock this one there was still another door the connecting door from this room into the next and from there into the hall his flashlight now It gleamed as he wrenched it from his pocket and ran to the connecting door. Was this too locked? Strange, those scattered jewels on the floor. That uncouth creature in a nightgown lashed in a chair and screaming in fright. He wrenched again at the door. No, it was not locked. But it was badly warped and it stuck. His shoulder, all his body weight, went against it. It gave now, almost bursting from its hinges. Jimmy Dale lunged through. It had cost him time. Time enough, he was afraid, to allow the phantom to get away across the yard, and... Yes, he had gained the rear door himself now. No one was in sight. But it was dark, damnably dark, and... What was that noise? It seemed to be a commotion of some sort going on in the street out in front of the house. The neighbors must have heard the old jeweler's screams. He was still screaming. Well, it didn't matter what it was. There was still a chance... The phantom could not yet be very far away, and he must have gone by the lane. Jimmy Dale was running now. In an instant he had crossed the yard, and then, as he poised to swing himself over the fence, he drew suddenly back instead, and crouched down in the shadows. Someone was climbing over the fence from the lane, not ten yards away from where he stood. A voice, muffled, gruff, reached him. Look out for that damn nail, sergeant. The police! A form, silhouetted against the night showed on the top of the fence for a moment, then dropped to the ground. It was followed by another. Jimmy Dale crouched closer in against the fence, in the shadows. He ignored his lip now in bitter chagrin. He was not afraid of being discovered. It was far too dark for that. But he knew that with this further delay, any hope of finding the phantom again was definitely at an end. The two men were joined by a third they crossed the yard and disappeared inside the house. Cautiously now, Jimmy Dale moved farther on along the side of the fence, away from the house. With the Phantom gone, it became purely a question of self-preservation now. Smarlinghue, found here by the police and subjected to a search, held perhaps until the make-up, worn off in a police cell, disclosed Jimmy Dale, was but little more pleasant to contemplate than was the present realisation of the Phantom's escape. Well, it should be safe enough here. He was at the far end of the yard now, and silently, quickly, he swung himself over the fence into the lane. He broke into a run, swerved into an alleyway that crossed the lane some fifty yards farther on, and, following this, finally emerged on a cross street a block away from the old jeweller's house. There was a certain strange, abnormally cold composure upon him now. A sort of philosophical acceptance of the fact that the Phantom had got away. But his mind was probing, sifting, searching for the answer that would explain the direct cause of the Phantom's escape, leaving him, Jimmy Dale, victor only to the extent of having saved for the old jeweller the contents of his safe. Who was it who had given that signal, which, so evidently now, had been a warning that the police were at hand? And how did it happen that the police had known anything about what was going on in Max Leinstahl's? It wasn't the shot or Max Leinstall's screams. There hadn't been any disturbance up to the time the doorbell had rung. Jimmy Dale, shuffling along, as Smarlinghue always shuffled, went up the block, turned the corner of the street on which Max Leinstall's house stood, and as though suddenly attracted by the little crowd that had gathered in front of the old jewellers, made his way forward in that direction." He reached the fringe of the crowd as a man in the uniform of a police lieutenant, jumping from a car, pushed his way unceremoniously through the rather tough-looking aggregation on the sidewalk, and halted before a policeman who stood on duty at the door. Jimmy Dale's eyes narrowed for an instant. That was Klinger, a lieutenant in the precinct. It might be worthwhile. Jimmy Dale, as Smarlinghue, was apparently actuated now by no other motive than an ill-mannered, morbid curiosity that prompted him to secure the best vantage point that he could, for, as he wormed and elbowed his way nearer the lieutenant, his mouth was agape, breathless with interest, in a sort of senile way. He caught the lieutenant's quick-flung question to the officer at the door. "'Did you get him, Lynch?' "'No, sir,' the man answered. "'You didn't?' How's that? That woman, whoever she was, handed us a fake tip over the phone, then.' Smiling his ragged form edged still closer to the two officers, as though his curiosity were now beyond the bounds of restraint, as though he were not only utterly oblivious to, but quite innocent of the impropriety of standing there with blear, blinking eyes and gaping mouth, greedily drinking in a conversation by no means intended for his ears. "'The woman!' Whoever she was. It was the Toxin, then, who had sent the warning to the police. It couldn't have been anyone else. No, sir, the man addressed as Lynch answered. It was straight enough. Only there was an outside worker on the job, I guess. Anyway, just as we got to the corner over there and started to cross the street, a man ran up to Leinstall's door here and then beat it like blazes down the street and got away. Did you get a look at him? "'No, he was?' "'We aren't sure,' Lynch replied. "'But O'Grady said he thought it looked like the kitten.' "'The kitten?' Jimmie Dale was fumbling with his battered hat. The crowd, as it jostled, had suddenly pushed him none too gently against the police lieutenant's elbow. Lieutenant Klinger swung sharply around. "'Send this damn mob about their business,' he snapped at the policeman.' and maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea to run in one or two of them while you're at it. Some of them look as though they were due for it. He stared suddenly into Jimmy Dale's face. You, eh, Smiling You? Hop-fighting, I suppose. What the hell are you doing around here? Me? Smiling You circled his lips with his tongue. I, I ain't doing nothing, he mumbled, and shrinking back through the crowd, and casting furtive glances over his shoulder in the direction of the police lieutenant, while the crowd laughed, Smarlinghue scurried hurriedly down the street. End of Chapter Seventeen.
0: What's so special about Hero Bread? Soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas.